Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. On today's episode, Andy Evans and I have the opportunity of hosting Eric Kopayashi Salam. Eric is the author of The Intelligent Option Investor, where he explains option investing and how it can be used and applied to value investing. Eric is the founder of IOI Strategic Consulting and has extensive experience in financial markets, having worked for Morgan Stanley, Morningstar, and Ironbound Capital Partners. He's also an active contributor to Forbes magazine. We discuss the weaknesses of the Black Shoes model, thinking in probabilities through the BSM code, selling put options in the context of value investing, the implied leverage in building options, and the risks retail investors might be currently taking. We hope you enjoy it. So Eric, thank you very much for joining us in the Value Perspective podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Maybe to begin with, it might be a good idea for you to introduce yourself and provide us with a a little bit about your background. Sure, happy to do it. And Juan, thank you for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. So before writing the book, I spent time on the sell side, the buy side, and then in third-party research. And essentially on the sell side, I learned a lot about how kind of options work. I was working on options desk. On the buy side, I learned something about valuation. And then working in third-party research, I um, kind of deepened my understanding of valuation and then figured out how to combine the options with the valuation. So I, I worked at Morgan Stanley for about six years and then hedge funds for about three years and then uh, Morningstar in Chicago for about six years. And since then, I've been doing mainly valuations of uh, private companies, actually. One of the things that we, we haven't mentioned in this introduction is that you are the author of a very interesting book, which is called The Intelligent Option Investor, uh, which yes. pretty much um, applies option investor option investments to the world of value investing. So maybe can you provide us a little bit of background about the book, what the book is about, how you came up with the idea? Yeah, sure. I mean, the the big thing about options is is that um, mostly people who talk about options talk about things that value investors don't care about and vice versa. Like the the messages of value investing and option guys, they they just don't resonate with one another. But I realize that options are just simple directional instruments that can be used for value investing strategies. And so, you know, the the time that I spent on an options desk and then the time that I I spent thinking about uh, the valuation of companies um, allowed me to think about how I could kind of meld those two things. And so that's why the 
title of the book, The Intelligent Option Investor. Of course, this is um, kind of my, my little joke, my, uh, my nod to uh, Benjamin Graham, The Intelligent mm -hmm. Investor, and trying to apply those um, ideas of value investing to the world of options. So we, we would like to keep this as non-technical as possible. Um, can you please provide us with some background or walk us through what an option is, how they work, and how can you apply them within a value investing investment framework? Sure. So an option is a simple directional instrument that allows an investor exposure to either the upside potential or the downside potential of an asset's price. So let me say that one more time. An option is a simple directional investment that allows an investor exposure to either the upside potential or the downside potential of an asset's price. So a call option is a special flavor of option that allows an investor exposure to upside potential. And a put option allows an investor exposure to downside potential. So let's contrast that definition with what a stock is. A stock shares some characteristics. It's a simple directional instrument. However, it requires an investor to be simultaneously exposed to both the upside and downside potential of the market price of a company. So as a stock investor, if you want to gain exposure to a company's potential upside, you must implicitly pay for that upside exposure by accepting the risk of a downside move in the stock's price. So in other words, an option is just disconnects that requirement to invest in both the upside potential and the downside potential. And because options allow an investor exposure to either the upside or downside potential, if an option investor wants to gain exposure to a company's upside, they can simply choose to do that. But because that linkage between upside and downside exposure is broken, to gain upside exposure, they have to explicitly pay a monetary premium. So if you want to gain exposure to an upside like a, a, a long stock investor would, you need to pay a premium to gain that upside. But in return, you don't have to pay the implicit price of accepting downside risk. Conversely, an option investor might want to just accept the risk of a downside loss. And we can talk about why that would be the case too. And if he or she accepts that downside risk, they get to receive that premium payment. So um, you can see that there are some similarities and some differences. The similarities are that they're both directional instruments. They're pretty simple instruments. In contrast to what you might hear like in a CFA course or in a, a master's program where you get the idea that it's just like hockey stick diagrams and partial differential equations, um, they re options really are very simple directional instruments. So now, how can in an investor, a value investor use options? And can I ask you something before we yeah, move yeah. into the value investing side, which is, sure. I guess one of the main differences, if we, if we are looking at both instruments, 
comparing them side to side. One of the main differences would be that uh, the, the share of a company is essentially long duration, whereas options tend to be, by definition, short, de- short duration. Is that correct? Yes. So there are some longer term options. These are called leaps and they can go out um, two years, some, something like a two year tenor. And that's just barely kind of getting to where an institutional investor might want to make a, a bet or a value investor might want to make a bet. But you can also, also always roll those, um, roll those options. In other words, decide whether you want to continue the bet or not. I, I actually find that the, the fact that options do expire, it does force some constraints to an investor, but it also helps in that we get to think about, is the bet that we're making the right bet to be making now? So if you're just a stock investor, if nothing's wrong with the position, you don't think about it maybe. Like this is just a position that we don't have to worry about. Well, with an option position, even if it's working out well for you, you need to think, okay, this is my stated investment opinion. Does this still hold true? It gives you a chance to reassess. Very interesting. And, and, and then how, how can you apply this in an intelligent way to the value investment framework? So I really like to think of investing like a meal. And I think one of the problems with the way most option guys talk about options is they think about options as single uh, non-directional instruments. So you get things like condors or butterflies, which mm-hmm. are really highly levered instruments that are meant to constrain um, directionality. And they're only invested in the option. I prefer to think about investing as a meal. And I always think about my meat and potatoes part of the meal as being the underlying stock. And then the options will provide some spice that accentuates the flavor of an underlying stock investment. And what I mean by that is like, let's say you have a a stock, a company that has a bad quarter and you know that it's a bad quarter and it's gonna have like two or three more bad quarters. Like there's nothing good that's gonna come from this company for a while. So you know that there's no immediate upside uh, to the to the stock, but you like the stock longer term. So in that case, maybe you uh, buy a smaller position in the stock and then accept that downside exposure. You know that the stock has been beaten down. You don't particularly like the upside, but you also know that the downside is not as worrisome as everybody thinks. So that's a perfect example of using options as a spice on top of a meat and potatoes meal. Your meat and potatoes is a stock position. Maybe uh, you want that gain three to five years away and you don't mind taking a little bit more risk on the downside. That's very interesting. So as investors, and this is a podcast about decision-making and as investors, we make decisions all the time. For that, we have a set of tools either raw data or frameworks that should, in theory, help us make better decisions. When it comes to options, many people rely blindly in the Black-Scholes model. 
you've been critical of this approach, as you have said in the past, that the Black Scholes, Black Scholes model is not smart in itself as any other model. It's just a tool. So can you explain that in a little bit more of detail? And how can we take advantage of the inefficiency that it's embedded in the, in the model when we're making decisions in the context of investing? Yeah, that's a, a great question, Juan. The one thing that your listeners should understand is everybody thinks of the Black-Scholes model as an option pricing model, but at its heart, it's actually a probabilistic model of how asset prices behave. The option pricing bit is really very easy. Um, if you have a, a probability of making a dollar sometime in the future, and the, the probability of making a dollar is 10%, then that option should be worth 10 cents. So the assumptions that Black, Scholes, and Merton used to model the price of stocks were the efficient market hypothesis. Remember, they were working kind of in the early 70s. So the efficient market hypothesis was kind of the big deal. And they they were also working in Chicago, which was a big city for commodity prices. So commodity prices, they were looking at commodity prices to try to figure out how to, to model asset prices. So again, returning to the idea that the Black-Scholes model is uh, a model of how asset prices behave, if you have any doubt that efficient market hypothesis holds, or that commodity prices are a good model for stock prices on the long term, you should be suspicious about the prices that the Black-Scholes model spits out. So that's my suspicion about the Black-Scholes model. I, I just don't like the, the base assumptions I think are inherently mistaken. And so, you know, junk in, junk out, garbage in, garbage out. So the Black-Scholes model is really useful for intelligent investors though, because if they know how to read option prices, they can see exactly what probabilities the market is assigning to the future prices of stocks. And then they can just simply compare that to what they think is reasonable. So it really is like sitting down at a poker table and being able to see your own cards, but then being able to see everybody else's cards as well. And then you can make a lot more intelligent bets that way. So for example, and this is a real example that I saw, albeit this was an example that I saw during the 2008 crash. So it's kind of a, a strange time, but I saw a company that was um, trading for around $10 a share and it had $8, of share, uh, $8 per share of cash on its books. It was generating um, about 50 cents a year in, in cash and had eight, $8 on its books and it didn't have any debt. So you don't have to be Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger to know that that stock is probably worth at least $8 a share, right? That, that's a yep. pretty hard downside. Yes. But looking at option pricing screens, I saw that the market was pricing in something like a 30% probability that the price of the stock in three years time would be below $8. So the fact is, is that the Black-Scholes model doesn't know how much cash a company has on its books. It's based on the efficient market hypothesis 
And the efficient market hypothesis assumes, first of all, that the current price is the value of the stock. And it assumes that the price movement is likely to be up or down. So it's completely stupid, right? You, yeah. It knows the price and it knows how it's going to move. So the Black-Scholes model is a probabilistic model of how asset prices behave, but because its assumptions are flawed, it gives the wrong price for options in certain cases. So in the case of this $8 per share stock with a misconceived 30% chance of falling below $8, it was an easy decision for me to just sell put options and accept that downside risk because I knew that there was no downside risk. It was like getting paid for nothing. It, it literally is an arbitrage kind of a situation. Eric, can, can we maybe go into a bit more detail on that? Because you're, you're exactly right. The, the big theme from uh, this podcast series has been about thinking in probabilities, um, not, not just in investing, but, but more widely than that. And one, one big thing you have in your book, and Juan's already touched on this before, is the idea of the, the BS, BSM curve, the, the, the fact that you can see the future probability distribution of where everyone expects the future share prices to be uh, based on the Black-Scholes uh, Black model. Right. Um, so can, can you just talk a little bit about how um, you can use that in investing and particularly in value investing? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. In my mind, the best thing an investor can do is to begin conceiving evaluations as a probabilistic range rather than as a point estimate. And the, the Black-Scholes, the BSM cone is, gives you a range, uh, a range of prices. But what you can do as an investor is start to conceive of your valuations as a range of values, and then just compare the range of values to the range of prices that are spit out by this Black-Scholes model kind of meat grinder, right? Mm. So about a third of my book is actually just dedicated to this topic about creating a valuation framework that will allow you to think about value in terms of range. The problem with human thinkers is that we're not very good at assessing probabilities. So like in theory, it would be great if we could all accurately assess probabilities, but this is what one of the groundbreaking findings of Kahneman and Tversky was that even trained people with a really sophisticated understanding of probabilities still make errors with them because of this, um, you know, reflexive thinking, right? Yeah. So what I think is best to do, and the, the kind of model that I've, I, I've pulled together in the book and that I use myself when I'm valuing companies, is to think about the handful of operational drivers that can create value. And what are those? Well, that's revenues, revenue growth, how you're responding to the demand environment, profits, um, how efficient your company is in uh, taking those revenues and, and uh, converting those into profits. And then uh, the last driver is future cash flow growth. So the projects that you're investing in right now, how likely are those going to be to succeed to drive cash flow growth in the future? 
So if you take those three operational drivers and think about kind of reasonable best and worst case scenarios for each of them. And when I say reasonable, if we talk about this in terms of statistics, I'm thinking about a one standard deviation, like what's most likely to happen, not, you know, a meteor hits the earth, what happens to my stock? Like yeah. you can't think about these kind of tail events for, for right now. Um, but if you know a company and an industry well, it's pretty easy to think about what kind of long-term best and worst case scenarios there are for each of those drivers. You know, for a consumer goods company, you know you're not going to probably get 15% per year growth. You know that best case is gonna look like, you know, um, single digits, maybe towards 10%. And worst, worst case growth over three years is gonna be kind of mid single digits, something like that, right? Profitability too. Profitability is, is really pretty easy. You can look at the historical profitability of the company and get a good idea of that. So when you sit back and do this and combine all the worst case values, so worst case revenues, worst case profitability, and worst case assumptions about cash flow growth, you come up with a worst case valuation, worst case. You do the same thing on the best case side and you come up with a best case valuation. That's really um, equivalent or really congruent to what the Black-Scholes model is doing with prices. And that's one of the great things about thinking in a, a probabilistic perspective or thinking about value as range is that you can compare your valuation range directly to the Black-Scholes model comb, the BSM comb. So like before I talked about, it's like playing uh, cards while being able to see all the other players' cards. So now you can compare your cards directly to uh, to what everybody else is holding, because you're you're thinking about your valuation the same way that they that the market is. The other thing, and this is more of a, a behavioral thing, um, but I find that thinking about valuations in terms of range has been really freeing to me as an analyst, because you're less tied to one specific number or one specific outcome. And you're more willing to accept and look kind of objectively at what's happening operationally in the co company and decide whether or not, oh, okay, so revenues look like best case, but it looks like my profits are hitting my worst case. What does this mean in terms of my valuation? And that's really helpful in avoiding a dangerous behavioral uh, bias called anchoring, anchoring bias. Yeah. That's really interesting because the the um, using ranges as a tool is something that keeps coming up on the series. It was mentioned by Annie Duke when we asked her about probabilities and how to um, adopt probabilistic thinking. I think that it was mentioned by the Modern when we had him on the show. I think it was mentioned by Ted Sidus. Um, everyone talks about the importance of incorporating and thinking within ranges. Why do you think, and you have plenty of experience working on, on different sides of, of the trade, either on the, on the sell side or research houses or the buy side. Why do you think that the industry is it's so obsessed with finding the one unique 
target number. Instead of thinking about a range of valuations, they always have like this target price. Why, why do you think is that the case? So honestly, I'm pretty cynical about this. I think that people just hate uncertainty and a range means uncertainty to some extent. So yeah. they would rather feel good. And even if they're fooling themselves, they would rather feel like they understand what's going to happen. And so, you know, this is why you see buy, strong buy, hold, these kind of recommendations that honestly, what does, what does that mean? Target price of X, uh, it, you know, it, it really simplifies and contracts the complexities that naturally arise in economics. Who, if we were having this discussion in late 2019, who would have thought about a, a virus coming out of China, right? Like you, you just yeah. wouldn't have even uh, factored that into your models. You've kind of touched on um, kind of probability distributions, but you said right at the top, you know, that the, the BSM model is basically based on the normal distribution. Um, and obviously we know in markets that that's really going to be true. And in particular, you know, tail events happen time and time again. You know, last year was one big tail event. Yeah. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about how tail events and different distributions can fit together with option investing? Sure. So, um, in fact, when I started working on Wall Street, I, somebody told me that there are only two emotions on Wall Street, greed and fear. <laughs> um, so greed represents the right-hand tail of the distribution, right? This is yeah. something unexpected, but really positive, a positive event. Like, you know, you just happen to stumble on the next Facebook or the next Apple or something like that, right? <laughs> and that fear is the left-hand tail of the distribution. This is like 2008 financial crisis, something like that. So I don't know what your impression is, my impression, frankly, is that investors are more consistently greedy than they are fearful. <laughs> you think so? Yeah, that's probably true. And the fact is, though, that the option market prices options as if there was more cause for fear. Okay, that's interesting. So what this means in practice is that put protection, buying put protection is really overpriced and really expensive. And call options, and especially long tenor call options, and you asked about the, the time as well, the especially long tenor call options tend to be underpriced. And there's a technical reason why that is true, just the way the Black-Scholes model works. So, you know, thinking about tail events, I. I Looking back at um, kind of what happened at COVID in March of last year, you see this, whenever a big unexpected negative event happens, you find the media finds the, the one or two funds that are still doing um, like black swan investing yeah. and uh, interview them and they say, yeah, yeah, my, my returns were 4,000% last month. <laughs> um, it sounds great. So I have a lot of questions about that and what those returns really look like on a realized basis over time, um, simply because 
those out of the money put options. The, the idea behind a black, a black swan fund is you just buy a basket of far out of the money put options and uh, let it ride and wait for something bad to happen. And the, the problem is, and, and this is something that I, I tell people who are thinking about investing in options, any money spent on premium, you should think of as an immediate realized loss. Hmm. So and that's not exactly true for intrinsic value, but any money spent on time value would, and out of the money options is all time value. Any money you spend on time value, you just think about burning up some cash and throwing it away. If the trade works out, you'll be able to, to get that money back, but it's gone. It's already, uh, it's out. So if you spend 10% of your fund every year on these far out of the money put options, that's a hard bet to keep making for three years, four years, five years, right? Indefinitely until the event, the tail event actually occurs. Right, yes. And so most people, after a few years of this, they say, you know, this is too much for me. I can't stand looking at my money getting 10% less every year. So I'm going to pull out of this. And then the year after they pull out, then you've got COVID or something and then 4,000% return. So uh, yeah, I'm a little suspicious about that. I'm a lot more bullish on the idea about these long tenor call options. And the leaps, you mean? The leaps, that's right. I believe those are systematically underpriced because of the way the Black-Scholes model assumes that stock prices are going to drift up over time. That's very interesting. Um, there is a strategy that picked up our interest recently that it's apparently being used by some value investors that I wanted to cross-check with you because I think my understanding is from your book, you don't really like that kind of strategy. So what's happening is uh, some people are selling put options in the market, receiving the premium upfront. So that's a cash income. And then they do this after doing extensive research on a stock, on a company that they actually like. And the rationale behind first selling the put option instead of buying the, the underlying stock right away is that they, if the price of the stock falls, then they should uh, be able to buy it at a much better price, which in turn, if their intrinsic value or fair value of the company proves correct, then the stock price should recover over time and the spread should close. And at the end of the day, if that works out, you get all of the upside plus dividends that you uh, you get from holding the stock, plus the the cherry on top of the cake, which is the premium, and then those together enhance your internal rate of return, the return that you are getting out of the out of your investment. Right. Um, you don't seem to like that strategy. Why is that the case? No, no, it's not that I don't like the strategy. It's just that the way I see most people executing it is not efficient. And let's think, let's think again about a meal, uh, about investing as a meal. So if you only sell put options 
and the stock price immediately the day, let's say your selling put option struck at $100. Yes. And the stock is trading at 101. So you're making, you're making good money. You're making, let's say, uh, you're making $4 over six months or something like that. Mm -hmm. So a, a nice annualized return. Fine. Now, but you don't buy the stock. And the day after you write the put options, the stock goes from 101 to 108. And you're, you, you're not in the stock. You've gained a couple bucks. So you've reduced your effective buy price by the amount of that, uh, of that premium, but your results are path dependent. And so my first rule in investing is simply, if you have a conviction, you should express your investment opinion the most direct way possible. So if you like the upside of a stock, buy the stock. The other thing that I see uh, people doing, and so buying the stock doesn't preclude also selling puts on it. That's, that's okay, that's fine. I think one of the problems that people make is that they think, all right, the stock is trading for 100, I would be willing to buy a lot more at 90 if the stock dropped to 90. And so they'll yeah. sell the put at 90. Well, the problem is, is that when you're selling puts, you're actually selling this implied volatility. And that's a commodity that is maximized at the money. So if the stock is trading at 100, the best place to uh, write an option is it's at the money. $100. So this is, I have two rules of thumb for transacting in options. One is always sell at the money, always buy anywhere but at the money. <laughs> the, other, the other rule of thumb is always sell in travel size and buy in family size. Okay, what does that mean? So sell and travel size means tenor should be short. Like if you go on a vacation and you buy a, you buy a, uh, a little shampoo. Yeah. If you figure out the implied cost of that little bottle of shampoo, you've just spent like five times as much as you would on a big bottle just for yeah. getting a little bottle, right? Yes. Options are the same way. If you're going to sell them, it's best to sell them over a short tenor. Let's say a hundred days. Yeah. But when you're buying them, because of that, because of that effect that I mentioned before, it's better to buy in family size. That means long tenor options, right? As long as you can get, because the time value per day goes down a lot. Yeah. So, you know, most people are say, saying, okay, the stock is trading at hundred. Let me write puts at 90 and they're getting almost nothing for that volatility that they're selling. It might make them feel a little bit better, but it won't make them feel better if like the company has a bad quarter and all of a sudden the stock price drops to 85. And now they've received a couple cents uh, for their 90 strike put options and they're underwater on everything, right? Yeah. So I, yeah. from previous conversations uh, that we've had, I think that there is an alternative strategy to what 
you would be trying to accomplish by selling the puts. I think that you have mentioned that that means are you selling the, the calls? Is that correct? Ah, uh, no. So this actually, so you like this stock at $100. So what that means is, is you like the upside and you don't mind the downside. Mm. And so what, what I like to do in this kind of a case is to sell the puts at the money, short tenor. So I'll sell a hundred day put. And then I'll use that money, the premium, and buy a long tenor call that maybe is out of the money. Okay. And at the same time, I'm buying the stock. So I've got my base position, my meat and potatoes in the stock. I've accepted some downside risk, and I've used that premium to subsidize um, a call option that's out of the money. So what happens? If the, if the stock price immediately moves up and um, you know, I'm investing in the way that I am convinced is, is the right way to invest, I'll, get, I'll be able to, to keep that premium on the put that completely subsidizes the call. And now I've got kind of a levered bet on the upside of the stock. So I really do like that strategy. That's really interesting. Thank you very much. You talked there, Eric, about um, juicing returns. And I guess you know, when you're dealing with options, you're, you're dealing with leverage most of the time. And you know, leverage can obviously equal risky in, in many cases. But be interested in your opinion on the fact that there's quite a lot of retail investors at the moment who are um, buying options, naked options, um, rather than buying underlying stock helped by various apps that you can do that quite easily on. Um, and, and using your analogy from before, you know, are some of these retail investors having too much spicy food in their diet? Uh, how do you think about that? Yeah. So, in fact, let me just correct you on one point. Options are not levered instruments. They are instruments that you can easily use leverage with. But so are stocks. Um, the main thing that I see as a problem is that especially a retail investor does not understand what leverage is. And the, the basic fact behind leverage is that if you have a highly levered instrument, or in other words, if you have an instrument that will, will generate a large percentage gain with a little amount of money, then you have to invest a lot. You have to have a very large notional position, much yep. larger than you would feel comfortable with. Yeah. So, you know, as as an institutional investor, we're used to thinking about a, a position with a lot of conviction as being five percent of your portfolio, right? I mean, that's a yeah. that's a big position. That's a bold a bold position, right? Um, a lot of investors don't realize the retail investors to make enough money from this highly leveraged strategy, they need, to, they need to buy so many contracts that if that was converted into an actual position or you know, a percentage position and the notional position, it would be like 80% of their portfolio. Yeah. And you know, as I mentioned before, any money that you spend on time value, 
you should just think of it as a loss. And, yeah. you know, you can see the prices jumping around and you might feel like a rock star one day, you know, you make 14 grand and wow, cool. I'm, I'm doing great. You know, I'm, <laughs> you know, in I'm just out of college. I'm, you know, I just made, you know, 30% of my annual salary trading these, these option things. Great. The problem is, is that, first of all, you, you may not be able to get out of that position at the price that you, th you think you can, because um, out of the money options have a large spread, bid ask spread is, can be very large. So maybe they can't get all that money. And mostly, you and I agree that greed is more consistent than fear is. And yeah. so if you make 14 grand in one day as a 26 year old kid, you figure, all right, tomorrow's another 14 grand, right? So yeah, you want to yeah. keep that going for as long as possible. And you end up not realizing, not realizing that. Um, and then, so with out of the money options, you're always fighting the time value and you're also fighting volatility. And if the stock price moves down a little bit, you again, you have an enormous change in the value of your position. And that can be really shocking. Um, and I think the other thing that is actually the flip side of your question is people who are selling options. And um, so I'm talking to you from the suburbs of Chicago and just uh, a year ago or so, uh, a kid who is living in another suburb here in Chicago committed suicide because he didn't understand the kind of the brokerage report for this large kind of levered uh, option sale position that he had. And it was offset, but that's an enormous um, personal tragedy. And selling options actually is just as dangerous if you're over levered. We saw this with the 2008 financial crisis this is, uh, leads to a problem that I call picking up nickels in front of a bulldozer. Like you're <laughs> accepting little amounts of premium for a lot of risk if yeah. the wrong thing happens, right? And yeah. so that can actually bring down an entire financial system. The only, the only reason that uh, AIG is still standing is through government support. Yeah. Eric, uh, that was really interesting. We, we're coming to an end of our session and we ask all of our guests two questions. Uh, one, can you please recommend us one or more books that uh, you, you, you might uh, have found interesting? And also, can you share with us a decision that you have made in the past or seen someone else make where the outcome was poor and you can identify that outcome being poor as a function of bad process and not bad luck? Sure. Okay, so first for the book, uh, the book recommendation, I am just so stubbornly iconoclastic. I really want to have only my own good ideas. And so I don't read a lot of investment books actually. Um, and so a few years ago when I, I was working at the director of research of a, of a, a startup um, financial services company, a guy gave me the collected essays of Warren Buffett. And I started reading through those. And I said, man, this guy's actually pretty smart. Like what he's <laughs> writing here makes sense. So um, 
this is, I always want to be like completely original and everything. And so I, I have a hard time kind of uh, following investment heroes. But honestly, I thought that uh, those, the Buffett essays were really great. The other thing, and I was, I was trying to find this book. I think I gave it away to somebody. It's a book about behavioral finance. And um, I can't remember the title of that, but it actually, it was kind of a, an academic book, a, a textbook. And it, it gave um, the titles of like a lot of the really early work in behavioral finance, the academic papers by Kahneman and Tversky and, and Stiglitz and people like that. And I actually find that reading through that, those academic papers is really interesting. And I'd really encourage people to do that. Very interesting. So um, for the uh, big mistake, uh, a few years ago, I did an analysis of GE, um, looked like there was value there. And I decided to go ahead and use my, you know, dinner strategy. I bought the stock, I sold some puts, I bought some out of the money calls. Um, maybe eight months after I did that, there's a big influential um, investor, kind of an activist investor that piled into the stock and announced that they'd piled in. And of course, like all of a sudden, my position just turned golden, right? Like everything looked great. I'm feeling like the smartest guy in the world. And so what I found was, is first of all, when that, that activist investor invested, um, it confirmed that I was right. So here's this thing called confirmation bias, which can be so really dangerous. The, the other thing is, is I think because I was writing about this publicly, that I became associated with the idea. And so I stopped assessing incoming facts as facts and started assessing them as attacks against my intellect. <laughs> and so when uh, a sell side guy, really knowledgeable guy, and it turns out correct, um, said, this company has real problems. Its value is a lot lower than it is right now. I felt that was a personal attack. And um, I, so personalizing that investment, I stayed in it and ended up like as happy as I was when the activist investor came in and all of a sudden, so like, because I had an out of the money call option, I had a levered position out further. And so that levered position was making a lot of money. The stock position was making a lot of money. I was doing great. As happy as I was in that case, I was just crushed when the stock started falling. And it really caught me at a time, you know, there's the, uh, the prospect value curve where, you know, if you, you've just lost a little money, you want more to bet, you're more likely to bet. And I, I kept betting for too long. I should have just said, all right, I'm wrong. It's obvious that I'm wrong. I'm getting out of this anyway. So that's, uh, my process, my big process fail. It was really, uh, uh, really a tough experience for me and really showed me 
how hard these behavioral biases are to overcome. That's great. Thank you very much, Eric. Thank you, Juan. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you.